Well, we made it, everybody. It's April. It's April the 3rd, and it is spring, or at least we hope that it is. It's a beautiful day out there this morning. If you were up like I was today, uh, the sunrise was beautiful. It was gorgeous. We're beginning a fresh new month, a fresh new season. It does look like there might be a little bit of snow in the forecast this week, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, we're just going to talk about the fresh and new wonderful things that are happening. And, and even as I kind of begin in that way, there's some of you that are saying, oh no, he said it. Because those are the infamous words that you say is, I think that winter is over. And before you know it, before we leave the room this morning, there'll be 18 inches of snow in the parking lot and we'll all be pushing each other up the hill to get out to Main Street. That's what we're all worried about. My name is Pastor Milo. If you're watching this later, if you're listening to the archives, we're glad that you're here. If you're here in the room, I'm glad that you're here as well. If we haven't met yet, I want to invite you, as I did a few moments ago, into Centerpoint after the service when it's the first Sunday. We try to do our best in to be able to talk to them. We call it First Sunday, First Step. I invite you to be able to be a part of what's going on here as a church and be able to find out some of the basics of who we are, what we're about. We want to help you to find your place. Well, if you get your Bibles out this morning, I want you to find your place in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Today's sermon title is The Merciful Master. We ask that you bring uh, something to write with each week, something to write on and bring your Bibles because there's going to be something here that's valuable for us each time we gather together around God's Word. And I don't think that this morning will be any different. I talked about the weather this morning as I opened because our family, my family likes to ski every winter. It's something that we do every time uh, that, that the snow comes out. We're someone, we just like to go play in the snow. And many of you, uh, if you're not from this area originally, snow can start to really wear you down. But man, it is really nice to go out and play in it if you know how uh, to do it. Uh, but yesterday, as many of you did, I started to make the transition in my garage from winter to summer, which means that I got on the roof of the car, took all the skis off of the roof rack and out of the, the car top carrier. I put them in the garage. I put them up uh, in, the, in the rafters in the garage, all the shovels in. I got them up and put them away. I got everything set that the spring is supposed to be here. We're supposed to be set until next uh, winter's ski season comes around. Uh, winter is nice, but spring is really pretty nice uh, if, if, if you've been through winters like we have. Uh, it's a little bit different here than when I lived in the Carolinas. I lived down there for about 10 years, and spring a while to kind of build momentum. Uh, so spring kind of gets here, you have this really warm day or two or week, and then you get this cold snap and you freeze and you can't figure out what's going on. Your body doesn't know what to do with all of that. Uh, in the south, though, when spring comes, it just comes. And, and here we get this beautiful uh, snow-fed grass, is what I like to say. It's just this beautiful green grass. And uh, in the south, as soon as the sun comes out, all the grass that you thought that you had burns immediately, and it goes away, and you have brown, dead grass all season long. Uh, but, he, but here, we have this kind of gradual transition. There, it just kind of pops. And, and, and the next thing you know, all the trees have flowers all over them, and all the buds are there. And, and for me, someone I did not realize uh, that I have an allergic reaction to many of the things that are going on 
in the south. And so pollen just sweeps the area in this green mushroom cloud that takes over everything and it covers your car and your vehicles and your house and you can't get away from it and you sneeze constantly. That's what spring looks like in the south. And as it happens there in the south, and we don't deal with it as much here because we do have this cold where things die, where things get dormant in the winter, trees actually stop from growing and, and things stop for a while from growing. In the south, they just kind of continue to grow. And so in a house that we lived at there, we had about an acre lot with a pond at the bottom where all the different houses kind of all faced this pond at the bottom of the lot. And there near the back of the lot, we had trees. And we had this problem in all the trees is that as the trees would grow, there was all of these vines that would grow in the trees, different types of vines, the, the ones that you've heard of uh, before, these pesky little things called poison ivy and poison oak and poison sumac. What do they all have in common? They're all awful, terrible things. These demonic plants are the curse uh, that God put on and Eve in the garden, and I think that the Garden of Eden must have started right in my backyard because that was the center of all of these things growing, and they were relentless. And so every spring, you'd have to go out, and you'd have to immediately start cutting things back and spraying things back. And what I'm about to share with you this morning is in the category of TMI, too much information that you're about to learn pastor, if you're one of our regular attenders, or if you're a guest with us this morning, shield your eyes, friends, because this is about to get a little too far. But it's going to talk about one of the main ideas I want to get across today in our message, that there are times that we are desperate in our need for help. Now, there are two types of people in this world. There are the people who are willing to ask for help, and those are the people who refuse to ask for help. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Look to your right, look to your left, and see if the person to you is the person who refuses to ask for help or the person who always asks for help. The person who refuses to ask for help could have one leg, one pant leg on fire while standing in a nest of rattlesnakes on the other leg, and they do not need any help. They are perfectly fine. They can see eventually that their chin is going to be sinking into quicksand, but it doesn't matter because they're perfectly fine. I'm fine. Leave me be. So raise your hand if the person in the row next to you uh, is the person who will never ask for help. If you're watching from home, there's hands up all around the room. Just kidding. So, one spring, while I was fighting the quest to get the land and property that was rightfully mine back from the poison sumac, the poison oak, and the poison ivy, I made a colossal error. This error is one, this mistake is one that I've learned now that many men have made over the years. I peed in the woods. Do not make this Without going into too much detail, uh, and for some of you, I've, I've already gone too far. I understand that. Uh, without going into too much detail, it became clear to me after about seven days that I was in need of immediate medical attention. It was bad. It was really bad. And it was completely horrific in its suffering. And I didn't want any more of it. And so I decided that I needed to go to the emergency room and get some professional help. 
Now, if you've ever gone to the emergency room with something like poison ivy or poison sumac or poison oak, you've got a problem. Because while you're there and you are in some significant pain and discomfort, in a very few minutes, the ER doors will swing open and someone will come through the door that has just fallen off of a two-story ladder or someone has gotten into a car or someone who has tried to do a DIY project at home and has electrocuted themselves. They just keep coming in one after another after another and your poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac problem doesn't seem to be so significant. It's really hard to get anyone to take you seriously. So I arrived at the ER a little bit after 6 p.m. I got more and more uncomfortable as the hours went by. I grew so impatient that I made this following decision at around 2 o'clock in the morning. People had come into my room. They'd come in and out. They'd asked me if I needed anything. They'd given me ice chips. They had given me they had given me juice cups, whatever they needed to do to make me feel more comfortable, but no one had actually taken a look at me. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I decided this, no matter what happens, the next person who comes through that door, I am dropping my pants. And that's what I did. And I got the help that I needed within just a few moments. I was desperate for help. I told you it was me too much information. I told you. I warned you. See, there's, there's two types of people in the world. There are those who don't mind asking for help and those who will never ask for help. But when push comes to shove, when the chips are down, we become truly aware of our own needs, often it's much more dire than the silly one that I just shared with you. We actually learn that we have to ask for help. In today's passage, we're going to look at two different men who knew that they needed help and they knew that Jesus could help them. We're going to see how Jesus responds to someone who calls out and cries out for help and how that applies to us. And what we're going to do is discover three gifts that Jesus had for these two men and that he has for us as well. The Gospels record this story that happens in Matthew chapter 20. Record this story three different times in the Gospel. Here we see it in Matthew chapter 20. And there are two blind men. In Luke chapter 18, there's actually only one blind man. In Mark chapter 10, the blind man has a name, and his name is Bartimaeus. So what biblical scholars do is they look at this story, they look at the three gospel accounts of this story, and they say what we have are three different points of view looking at the same story. And so by telling the person's story by name, particularly if this was a known person in their community, Mark, as he is doing that and is naming him, he is making sure that people could go and actually go and talk to this Bartimaeus to find out more about the story, give authenticity to what was being shared. In Matthew, the book that we're looking at today, the gospel that we're reading today, having two different people in the story and realizing there was two blind men, it gives authenticity to Matthew's purpose and what he is writing, to elevate Christ as the king. Because in doing so, that meant that he had the power and has the power to heal anyone at any time, no matter what, whenever he wishes. So if you'll read with me, we're there now in Matthew chapter 20. Let's read now verse 29 together. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So as I read these words, I actually have to, I almost feel like I need air quotes to the word followed him. 
the crowd began to, quote-unquote, follow him. I have to do that because, as you know, if you've been with us, we've gone through now 13 weeks we've been in this sermon series. 13 weeks we've been listening to the words of Christ and what it says for, for us to follow him. It's not for the casual observer. They're not just following him. They're not just fans. But no, he is saying, pick up your cross and follow me. When he says, follow me, this is a call to suffer. And so there's this large crowd, this large group of people who are wandering along with Jesus, following Jesus, but doing it in a much different way, a different definition than what Jesus has been giving for following him. So that's a little bit of clarification that we need as we get started here. The second piece, because this is shared in multiple gospel accounts, is this interesting thing that as Matthew is sharing here, Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho, is what Matthew says. So Matthew and the Gospel of Mark both report report that this incident that we're about to look at today appears as Jesus is going out of Jericho. And in the other Gospel account, it states by Luke that this happens as Jesus was approaching Jericho. There's been numerous solutions that have been given and proposed. But remember, if you're dealing with eyewitness accounts, they're all looking at the same thing. And so if they're looking at the same thing, and if we have a belief and an understanding that God's Word is always going to be consistent, then how do we reconcile that? Here's what we got to deal with. Matthew was there personally. He personally saw this story happen and unfold. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, we believe, was uh, uh, given to him by Peter. Peter tells Mark, Mark writes it down, this is the Gospel account that Mark has. So Peter was also there. And then Luke, he is a researcher. He is a guy who's either a, a medical doctor or a lawyer or perhaps both. And so he does all the research. He gets all the eyewitness accounts, puts it all together. And sometimes these eyewitness accounts can vary greatly, and yet they can all be true. And so we may lack sufficient uh, evidence to put it all together exactly as we might like. And it would be arrogant for us to to choose or to know one specific way from our limited perspective 2,000 years later to say one of these authors was the one who was in error. So here are a few of the proposed solutions to deal with that. So some say Jesus was leaving Jericho and leaving and, and coming into Jericho at the same time because there are two cities of Jericho. There's old Jericho and new Jericho. Just like many cities will grow, that you have a large part of the cities on the east bank of a river, and as it grows, it grows to the west bank of a river, but that city still has the same name on both sides. The same thing happens here. You have old Jericho or new Jericho. You also have a two-part event that might have been condensed into one account, meaning that the blind man cries out to Jesus as he enters. The blind man then follows, or the blind men then follow along with Jesus, and eventually as they're heading out of the city is when Jesus actually responds to them, along with the other beggars that are there as he is leaving the city. So no matter what the account is, whether it's this or Jesus turning back and going to the city to help and, and, and hear what they were saying, depending on how you look at it, Jesus is either coming or going from the city, but there are these blind men who are there along the way that he is going to heal. 
And what's actually happening because of the way this story is placed here in Matthew and the other Gospels is it's actually not as much about where this uh, situation happened, but why it happened. And what happens is the stories around it, we see that these blind men are calling out to God for mercy. And it's the very thing that in all the stories surrounding it that, that people will not do. The people who are listening to Jesus' message the Jews who are there who have listened to his teaching, the religious teachers of the day who know better and see Jesus in front of them as the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, are intentionally blinding themselves to that and ignoring it. And they should have responded to the Messiah in a certain way, just like these blind men did, and yet they chose not to. You see, these blind men respond to Jesus the contrast is the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, which we covered a couple weeks ago. They are all assuming that they can approach God because of their own merit, because of what they have done. They, they actually think and they believe that they are candidates for salvation, and they probably are at the beginning of their lives, at the beginning of these passages, but they are refusing to acknowledge their own sin. But Bartimaeus and the other blind man here who they would perceive to be unlikely candidates for salvation because of their uncleanliness or the way that they live their lives or the fighting and scratching that they have to do just to be there day after day. The presumption is that they have no merit. They have no standing. But they are the ones who cry out to God for mercy. So verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. The crowd was large, and the crowd is focused on the spectacle that is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is healing people. He is doing miraculous wonders that people want to see and experience. He is teaching, and he is saying things that the rabbis of the day would never say, and he is just putting it out there. It's all right there in front of them. But as this crowd surges along, they are spiritually blind to those who are in most need right in front of them. The ones in their community that are being overlooked and ignored, they are being lost in the crowd. Let me ask you a similar question this morning. Are you lost in the crowd? Are you lost in the crowd? My goofy ER story that I opened up with here this morning, I'm acknowledging that while I was there in the ER, there were plenty of people who needed assistance. There are plenty of people who came in the ER that night that needed the attention that they got. But yet, as the hours went by, as time went by, I was not receiving any attention at all. There was something wrong happening here. Maybe you're here this morning, and you are lost in the crowd. Meaning that you are aware and you realize that people around you have needs that need to be met, that need to be cared for, that concerns that they have, but somehow you are being lost in the crowd. That was the very for these two. So let's see what happens. Verse 30. Men were sitting by the roadside, and when they had heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. 
I told you that in our passage today, we would see the two men that needed help. We would see how Jesus responded, how he would be expected to respond. And in doing so, we're going to see these three gifts that he gives these two men as a response when they're calling for help. And here's the first gift. Jesus has time for you. That's the first gift. That's the first gift that he gives these blind men, and that's the first gift that he gives us here this morning. You see, many people would have expected that Jesus would have the same attitude as the crowd around him. Many would have expected him to say that he didn't have the time to stop and talk with them. They might have said, uh, Jesus expected to say something like, don't bother me right now, I've got Messiah stuff to do. Can't you see that I'm on my way to Jerusalem? And we know what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. The cross and agony and the sin of the whole world would be placed on his shoulder. Don't you think that he would have that on his mind in these moments? Have you ever come across, and I'm sure that you have, someone who acts like they don't have enough time for you? I go to a fair amount of meetings with pastors and leaders in the area, out of the area. And there are people who will look and appear at first like got the time for you, but they're looking over your shoulder, they're looking around the room, they're networking, they're trying to find someone a little bit more important than you to talk to as soon as they get the opportunity to do so. You know who I'm talking about? And then there's another person who might seem like they have all the authority in the room and for whatever reason they are willing to focus all their time, all their energy, and all their attention on you. It really makes you feel good when that happens. So, friends, I have to confess to you, I have to admit to you, I have to tell you, I will do my very best. Because you can't say that in a sermon and then ignore someone after the service. I'll do my very best as often as I can to give you my full attention as as well as I possibly can. But I I will fail you. I will disappoint you because I am not Jesus. Jesus will always have the time for you. Jesus has the time for you. And he will always make the time for you because he truly is a merciful master. Verse 32. Jesus stopped. Isn't that beautiful? And all the chaos, all that's happening, all the attention that he is getting, he hears their voice, he hears their call, and Jesus stops. He calls them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. You see, first, Jesus has time for you. Second, Jesus has mercy for you. First, Jesus has time for you, but second, Jesus has mercy for you. That doesn't mean that he's some type of genie that will answer all of our requests, even if they are specific. We've just come through. Matthew talks about, Mark talks about these passages that report that just after this incident, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come to Jesus. They ask him if he would do what they would request. And Jesus responds. He says the same thing. He says, what is it that you want? And they say, I want to sit on the right hand of you in heaven. And I want my brother to sit on the left hand side when we get to glory. And Jesus wouldn't grant the request. So it wasn't just because they asked, these blind men asked just had to respond. No, that's not how this works. It's because James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their request was one of selfish 
intent, of status, of prestige. Here the request is pretty straightforward. Lord, we want our sight. The underlying statement behind that that's being made here is, Lord, we want to see, we want to know, we want to have faith, and we trust that you are the one with the power to make this happen. That's what's going on here. And it's important for us to realize that life for blind people in that context and in that time is a very different life than what we know we see years later. We've had resources, we've had organizations, we've had advances in today's culture that would assist uh, visually impaired people in lots and lots of different ways. However, blind people in Jesus' day, they were often unable to receive any type of genuine help and as a result desperate situations. So here, as this is happening, as it's unfolding before them, these two men, they know that Jesus is there. They know that He is moving through the streets. They couldn't see Him, but they know that He heard from the crowd and probably the commotion that surrounded Him and all the attention. They cry out, Lord of David, have mercy on us. They couldn't see him, but they knew that if Jesus, if this was Jesus, the Messiah, if they could capture his attention, that he would give them focus because they needed help desperately. As they are yelling, as they are crying out, they are crying out this phrase, Son of David. This title, the Son of David, they are using to indicate that they know that he is the Messiah. The Messiah would be the son of David. The Messiah would be known as the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. And this Jesus of Nazareth, they're saying, it is He. And they knew that the Messiah would be able to help people. So they cried out to Him. They were saying, we know that You are there. We know You are the Messiah. We know that You can help us. Have mercy on us. This is the second gift. The gift that He offers Two blind men in the street, and he offers to you and to me 2,000 years later. Jesus has time for you. Jesus has mercy for you. Let's look at the third gift, verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight, and they followed him. Jesus has time for you. Jesus has mercy for you. Jesus has hope and healing for you. These men cried out to Jesus for mercy. Jesus takes the time to hear their requests. Jesus shows them mercy and it leads to hope in their lives. Something is changing inside of them both physically and spiritually. Because Matthew is trying to make sure that what we see here is not just the physical change that has happened inside. Because their physical blindness wasn't their greatest need. It's the same universal sin that was the need of every person in that crowd that day. Of every religious ruler that was looking on them who had, who had thought and had presumed that they had lived some type of holy life. The same problem that every human being on this planet has spiritual 
blindness, or more specifically, a sinful and depraved heart. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, and there's only one cure for spiritual blindness, only one cure for a sinful heart, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus was moved with compassion for them. He was moved to show them mercy, and He reaches out and He touches their eyes. Imagine the progression of emotions that are going through them as this is happening during this encounter. They are desperate and crying out and trying to get the attention of the crowd, trying to get the attention of Jesus, hoping that He would hear their voice over and amongst the crowd. And then this hope that arises inside of them because Jesus actually stops and He comes over to them, knowing that He was paying any attention to them at all. And then exhilaration that bursts through their bodies as he reaches out. They feel his hands touch their eyes. And suddenly they are able to see. Jesus brought transformational hope into the lives of these men. They were blind. But now they see. There's a story about someone visiting Ray Charles one time in a hotel room. They knock on the door. He invites them to come in. If you don't know Ray Charles, younger people, he's a blind musician, plays the piano. He's phenomenal. Knocks on the door. He invites them to come in. And someone asks the question, Ray, why are you shaving in the dark? He said, I do everything in the dark. These blind men had lived their entire lives in darkness and a touch of mercy from the master's hands they were able to see. As a result of hope and healing that Jesus brought them, they immediately drop everything and they follow Jesus. This is a different connotation when I say that they follow Jesus versus saying that the crowd was following Jesus along, isn't it? Because something had happened in their lives. Something had, had changed, transformed. They were blind, but now they can see. Something was absolutely different, and they had this hope that welled up inside of them that they were going to follow this Jesus wherever He went and serve Him with their entire lives. They were going to follow Him by taking up their cross and suffering, if that's what it meant. They were going to follow that man. He is the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. Jesus had changed them, and now they could call themselves Jesus followers. How many of you have been transformed in that way, changed in that way by Jesus? How many of you would say, I am a follower of Jesus? See, listen, church. Jesus has transformational, life-changing hope available for each and every person on this planet. This gift is available to all. And yet many of you, many of us, who believe that Jesus is indwelling in each of us, that we have light to see 
for the first time in our lives and we still choose to live in spiritual blindness. Why would we do that? The hope and healing that transforms you and transforms me transforms the sinful, damaged, broken heart. Transforms you into a Jesus follower. Let me ask the question again. Are you lost in the crowd? Are you lost in the crowd? Now that may have a couple different connotations to it. Are you lost in the crowd? I mean, you've been swept up in the crowd. You've been kind of following along, being a fan of the things of the church, the things that Jesus teaches, and never really buying in, never actually having that transformational hope take over your heart and take over your lives. Were you just following along? Did you get lost in the crowd? Or the second question, did you get lost in the crowd because you were in need, desperate need, And he didn't realize or didn't have confidence enough or boldness enough to start shouting at the top of your lungs, Lord, I need you. Help. If you call out, here's the three truths, here's the three gifts that God gives us according to this passage. Jesus has the time for you. Jesus has mercy for you. Jesus has hope, transformational, healing hope for your life and for mine. So the last question is this. Will you call out to Jesus? Will you call out to Jesus as the band comes forward this morning? We'll finish with a song that says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. But let me explain this one more time from Bartimaeus' point of view. Bartimaeus, we know by name in the, in the Luke accounts. So we're going to talk specifically about him because we, we know him. Bartimaeus wakes up. He gropes around for a crust of bread to start his day. Then he takes his staff and he taps his way down through the street from the shack that he calls a home out to his normal spot. And when he hears people passing by, he would cry out, alms for the poor, alms for the blind, alms for the poor. And somehow he would scrape together enough to make a living to survive another day. But today was different. A larger than usual crowd was making their way past his normal place. When he asked what was happening, he was told, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And Bartimaeus instantly thinks, Jesus of Nazareth, I know him. I've heard of him. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, a great prophet. No, I believe that he is the son of David, the Messiah, the son of God. I've heard about his marvelous teaching and how he heals the sick and touches the eyes of the blind and they are made whole. Bartimaeus knew instantly That this was his window of opportunity. Jesus would soon be passing by. After that, he may be gone. And he might not have another opportunity to call out to him again. For you football fans, it's like a halfback that sees the opening and jumps through the window to be able to advance the ball. Bartimaeus plunges in. Plunges on through and he shouts at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The people around him, they start saying, shut up, old man. We don't want to hear from you. Get out of the way. 
and he shouts all the more, Son of David, Jesus, Lord, Rabbi, have mercy on me. The ones who are leading the crowd, they say, tell that beggar to stop, to be quiet. The master has important things that he needs to attend to. But Bartimaeus would not be silent because he was desperate. It's his only chance and he was not going to miss it. So just as Bartimaeus had his opportune moment to cry out to Jesus and then it would be gone, it may be that way with you here this morning as well. Today is the day of salvation. You may not have tomorrow. You don't know what's going to be waiting for you to go out those doors today. Today you are hearing the Word of God, the Son of God, the Son of David is passing by. Will you cry out to Him? Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the only one with the power to heal you. The power to take away your spiritual blindness. Call out to Him while He is near. I need you. Oh, I need you. As we said earlier, each time there's a first Sunday, we have a time of communion together. As you get the elements out for communion, I'm reminded of that first communion happening during a time of Passover. The book of Exodus tells us about Passover and the way that they were gathered together, huddled in their homes, and they were desperately in need for God to save them and to rescue them from imminent doom. The angel of death was coming through their community and they needed to put the blood on the doorpost. They needed to make a sacrifice. They needed God to protect them. And it's in the same environment that Jesus gathers his disciples together. He lets them know, I'm going to be going to the cross. I'm going to be going and dying on your behalf. I want to share this last meal with you and let it be a reminder to you each time that you come together. Reminder that you need me and that I am sufficient for you. And so this morning, we look at our passage from 1 Corinthians, which is where we read and get instructions for the church to come together in communion. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life wholly and completely and fully to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Maybe you wait. Maybe you wait because communion was meant to be. Jesus says, you want to be at my table, you need to know and understand that you have given your life wholly over, that you have claimed this gift that has been given to you, that you know that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so as he gathers his disciples around, he tells us to gather around as well. He says it's a time of thanksgiving, of reflection. Have you called out to him? Desperate as Bartimaeus and the other blind man and say, I need you, Lord. I don't only need you for the moment of salvation, but I need you for every moment of every day and every day after this. Lord, I need you. So if you got that communion cup, I'll read now from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, For I see from the Lord I also delivered to you 
the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. We take that bread and eat together. The following verse follows along. It says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Lord, there may be some here this morning who knew that they could not partake in communion today because they have not called out to you with that desperate cry. Lord, I need you. I need you. Son of David, have mercy on me. If you're here this morning and that's you, I pray that you would be willing to call out to God just like this. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. The Bible says that I'm a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says that I have no merit or no strength in myself to save myself. I believe it. The Bible also describes this Jesus Christ as the one who can save me and make me whole. I grab a hold of you, Jesus. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, would you heal me and make me see. In Jesus' name we pray.